Welcome to the Murder Book, a true crime podcast, where each week we will present notorious crimes, controversial cases, unsolved cases, missing persons, and serial killers, details of the crime scenes, childhood of the murderer, and the life of the victims will be explored. Each episode is translated into Spanish. We have a new episode every Monday, and you can listen to it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and other platforms you use to listen to your podcasts. Let's begin. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution for children under 13. Welcome to The Murder Book. I'm your host, Kiara, and it has been a while since a few weeks since I have presented a new case. I have been busy with other projects, but I am going to start um, a new case, but I'm going to try to do it a little bit differently. Um, I'm going to be talking about the hunt for Wichita serial killer known as BTK or Dennis Rader that took 30 years into his capture and I'm going to tell it from the from the perspective of one of the FBI agents that for many years profiled uh, BTK and he contributed to the hunt of this killer. And everything started in 1974. John Douglas was around 28 years old. He was working at the FBI's Milwaukee office and talking to some detectives in the police department. He uh, he started uh, li- listening to some of the stories in one of of interesting cases that they were talking about was about a serial killer in Wichita, Kansas, who called himself the BTK Strangler. And granted that in 1974, the the term serial killer was not used, that was not coined until Special Agent Wrestler, another profiler, colleague of John Douglas, coined the term. But... They only knew about this killer was his initials, BTK. They they were asking what did they stand for. And at that moment, this elusive killer starts getting into John Douglas's head. He wanted to know more information. This is the time frame that John Douglas and Wrestler started on a quest to understand what motivated someone who seemed to enjoy perpetrating acts of violence upon complete strangers. And this was what makes serial killers so difficult to identify because they rarely killed anyone whom they knew intimately and their crimes often appear to have no motive. So... It was Douglas and Ressler's personal mission to find out what drove these vicious, heartless killers. He wanted to know how they view the world, how they perpetrated their crimes, how they selected their victims. And one thing that he said as a goal was, if I can get answers to those questions, then I will be able to help police around the, the country identify serial killers long before they got the chance to leave a long bloody trail in their wake. So um, John Douglas went to the Milwaukee Public Library and started locating some old newspapers from Wichita. And he started reading every word that had been written about the quadruple homicide that this killer had committed in January 1974. And he learned that BTK stood for bind, torture, and kill. This was his self-chosen nickname that perfectly summed up his MO. He somehow managed to 
waltz his way into the victim's home, tie them up, torture them in the same way a schoolboy might torment an insect, and then, when it suited him, he killed them. And he, he was uh, a killer that he didn't care who he killed. He would claim the lives of men, women, and children. So, John Douglas was busy working on his cases, robberies, fugitives, uh, kidnapping cases. Um, he was in graduate school studying, studying psychology. And at the same time, he was trying to, to try to think of BTK in his spare time. Who the hell is BTK? What makes a guy like like this do what he does? What makes him tick? And then at the same time, the FBI's Behavior Science Unit, or BSU, was operated out of the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. And they... They would transfer John Douglas to BCU and he would spend his days profiling the minds of these violent serial offenders uh, full time. And he started as an instructor first and, but, and he began teaching courses in hostage negotiation, criminal psychology, um, and one day... On March 1978, he was researching another case. He dug up what he could on BTK, and he was surprised to learn that since 1974, he had somehow still eluded police, now claimed responsibility for seven murders. By this time in 1978, he had already sent two taunting letters to local newspapers. The first one was in October 1974, the second was on February 1978, and he was daring the police to catch him. By 1979, John Douglas was in the midst of his serial murder research program. He was conducting a series of in-depth interviews with around 36 serial killers, Charles Manson, Arthur Bremer, Richard Speck, John Wayne Gacy, David Belkovitz, aka the Son of Sam, and, and many others. And these were men that have killed three or more victims with some sort of cooling off period between the crimes. And Then in 1979, in the fall of 79, um, the fall rang in his office and it was a homicide detective with the Wichita Police Department. And they asked if they could help them with a case that they had been working on. And he said, sure, tell me about all about it. And then he said, well, we got a serial killer out there, out here and goes by the name of BTK. Have you heard of him? And he said, well, only what I have read in the papers. And so the detective walked uh, Douglas through the BTK murders. They detailed the twist, the turns of the investigation, and they reiterated his claim that police would welcome any assistance the FBI's BSU could lend. And they even invited him to come to Wichita. And Douglas said, well, I can give you a day and bring, bring everything that you got. We can go through it and, and then I'll, I'll put an analysis together for you. So Wichita uh, Police Lieutenant Bernie Drowoski, uh came to Quantico to visit uh, Douglas, and he showed him his crime scene photos across the table. He they went murder by murder, um, and 
they, you know, Douglas said, well, the only caveat is that you can't tell me about any potential suspects you might be looking at. And he said, well, we don't have any suspects. And so John Douglas started looking at all the photos. And the fact that this detective traveled all this way to seek his help told him one thing that the Wichita Police Department was grasping for anyone, anything that could help steer them in a direction that they have not thought of. And, you know, uh, Detective uh, or Lieutenant Duboski said, we normally solve our murders in Wichita, but this one is not like the others. So at this time, Douglas and his colleagues were trying to acquire answers uh, for the formula, which was why plus how equals who. And they believed that that would help them crack hard cases. Um, and one of the questions that they would ask is, why could would someone want to kill multiple victims over a period of days and months and in the case of BTK, many years. Why do they target certain types of victims? How do they prepare for their crimes? What sort of impact do their actions have on them? Are they born to kill? Did some childhood trauma warp them, causing them to turn violent? Or is it their homicidal appetite, you know, a combination of these two factors? What factors led to their identification and arrest? Did they get sloppy? Was the capture a result of stellar detective work? So um, they have an interview protocol. And this interview protocol had thousands of questions. It was like 57 pages long. But by doing this protocol questionnaire, it will provide them uh, with insight from from these killers and to try to get inside the mind of a serial killer. So from what police have been able to piece together from BTK's crime series, it was clear that this killer maintained a high level of control over the victims. And this form of dominance over another person appeared to be a big turn-on for BTK. He tied his victims up. He used rope or whatever else was handy at the scene. When it came time to kill, his preferred method involved either a garrote or a plastic bag tied over the head. He often arranged the bodies of the victims in poses reminiscent of a detective magazine cover. And before fleeing, he would sometimes masturbate on or near his victims. And one of the things that John Douglas emphasized in the paper that he wrote when he did the analysis of the case in 79, he emphasized to the police that BTK's ego would eventually lead to his downfall. And they said, your job should be to stroke his ego in public whenever possible, show him the respect he crave, in the hopes that he would continue to communicate with them. The way Douglas saw it, the best his, for him, it was that the best chance that law enforcement had to get a handle on this killer was to keep him talking exactly what police did with his analysis, he had no idea because then he had to go and jump to another case. But he said, hey, I'm a phone call away if you need me again. So this is in, this, in 79. So years passed. This is October 1984. The Wichita police paid a second visit. This is seven years since BTK's last known murder. And the police still were not any closer to to arrest uh, anybody. So 
The Wichita Police Department had recently formed an eight-person BTK task force known as the Ghostbusters. The longtime chief was retiring, but before leaving his post, he wanted the case solved and closed. So he assembled a team of six crack investigators, a captain, a lieutenant, and instructed them to reopen the files, sift through the mounds of crime scene photos, witness statements, police reports, autopsy reports, and even the analysis that John Douglas gave them on the case years before. After three months, they were desperate to ensure that the investigation didn't hit another brick wall. So they reached out again to the BSU. And they asked if John Douglas's unit could offer any assistance. And um, so after a week, Two task force detectives, his name was Paul Dotson, the other one was Mark Richardson. They were sent to the FBI Academy, and they have pounds of crime scene photos. They have various reports. So they met with John Douglas at the Forensic Science Building, and he, at this point, he was overseeing six criminal profilers. So the BSU has expanded a lot. And so he asked them to go into the conference room because he had some um, colleagues waiting for to work with the detectives. And so they had a, they ready a slide projector. And Douglas explained just how far they have come with their criminal profiling program since the last visit of that Wichita homicide detective in late 70s, right? Like in 78, 79. And for the next eight hours, they outlined the basic facts of the case. They described the victims, the communication the killer had sent, medical examiner's reports, different neighborhoods where the murders had occurred. And John Douglas listened to the presentation um, and he he felt that after they finished the presentation, he had more questions than answers. And there have been already six years that passed since he had written to police about this murder. So he started ingesting all the information with four other uh, colleagues. Um, And they said, you need to give us a few days while we process all this information. So they met again a few days later with the detectives and they provided the detectives with a detailed verbal profile of what they have concluded about BTK, given the limited information that they had at that point, along with some proactive ideas that they believed might work to flush him out. In 1987, this task force, the Ghostbusters, was disbanded because BTK was only one of thousands of cases um, So they needed to move on. Now, um, John Douglas retired in June of 1995, and they have not even identified who BTK was. And he started to wonder, is he dead? Has he been in jail for another crime? Has he moved away from Wichita? Was there another reason to explain why he had gone underground? And then one evening in March of 2004, a former colleague of his uh, his telephoned and so when he picked up the phone, 
um, he talked to someone and he hanged up the phone and he looked at his wife and said he's back. BTK is back. So the news that BTK had resurfaced and had just sent the local newspaper a packet containing a photo snapped of a murder he had committed in 1991. This excited John Douglas, but it also uh, disappointed him because his gut told him that it would be just a matter of time before he tripped himself up and police would capture him. But at the same time, because he was no longer employed by the FBI because he retired, um, he would have to wait years before he would have a chance to ever get a crack at interviewing him because he doesn't have those connections anymore. So over the next 11 months, Wichita police used a technique that John Douglas tried in the 1980s to solve another murder. This murder was in San Diego and basically involved creating what he called a super cop, the kind of law enforcement officer who could stand up at press conferences, talk directly to the unsub, and eventually building up such a rapport with the suspect that he allows himself to take chances and risks he wouldn't take otherwise, which was exactly what happened with BTK. He left his guard down. He began to believe that he and the police were, in a sense, comrades and colleagues. He made the mistake of believing that he could trust them to tell the truth, and that led to his downfall. In February 2005, police arrested Dennis Rader, a seemingly mild-mannered married church-going father of two, two grown children. He was a municipal employee. He worked for the city of Wichita as a compliance officer, handing out tickets to people when their lawns grew too high or they held a garage sale without obtaining the necessary permits. And he had continued to kill. His body count had climbed to 10 victims. Six months after his arrest, Raider spoke at uh, his televised sentencing hearing and he detailed very calmly whom he had killed and how. But John Douglas, of course, wanted the why. For John Douglas, BTK was one of the very first serial killers that he encountered whose appetite for death set him on a journey to find out more because his career was as long as John Douglas's. He has been always there, always lurking on the periphery. So one thing that uh, John Douglas decided to do is, I want to know more about BTK because I want to write a book about him. So for years of study and analysis that he had done on serial killers, nothing about Dennis Rader makes sense to him. He wanted to know who was this guy. Why did killing mean so much to him? How could he be married, raised two kids, and also be such a heartless monster, sex sexual pervert? Why did he go underground for so many years? How was it that this killer could be elected president of his church? Why was no one able to glimpse his real identity? Is there anything that could have been done during all those years that would have led sooner to his arrest? Why did he finally come out of hiding and get caught? So Douglas at that point decided to, to write a book. He didn't know how rough this journey was going to, to be because he has to cover um, a, a, a span of, th of at least three, three decades. 
So John Douglas have to go to the beginning to where it started. And he starts to look at when um, two detectives from the Wichita Police Department came to see him and the FBI after they have read um, his 1979 analysis of the BTK case and wanted to discuss the latest development in his research that would allow them to finally nab this killer. They don't want to profile, they wanted more techniques. And he started to look of where pretty much started. And the facts behind BTK's killing went like this. In January of 1974, he strangled a man named Joseph Otero, age 38. He killed his wife, Julie, 34, his son, Joey, age 9. The partially nude body of the daughter, Josephine, age 11, was discovered hanging from a water pipe in the basement, and there was a large amount of semen on her leg. In October, the local paper received a detailed letter from someone claiming to have killed the Otero family. In March 1977, Shirley Vian, 24, found strangle with her hands and feet bound. The killer had locked her children in the bathroom. In all likelihood, he would have killed them, but was scared away by a ringing telephone. In December 1977, BTK telephoned a police dispatcher to inform police about his latest murder. 25-year-old Nancy Fox, whose body was found strangled on her bed. The next month, the killer sent a letter about the killing to the local paper, although it wasn't discovered for almost two weeks. In February 1978, he spent his Sorry, he sent another letter to a local TV station. He was gloating over his killing of Vian and Fox, along with another unnamed victim. In April 1979, he waited inside the home of 63-year-old woman, but eventually he left before she returned home. Not long afterwards, he sent his intended target a letter. He informed her that he had chosen her as his next victim, but had opted not to kill her after growing tired of waiting for her to arrive home. So now the local cops have exhausted their leads, and investigators have managed in, in those years since Douglas did his uh, review of the case and analysis they have managed to link another homicide to him. In April 1974, three months after the Otero killings, Catherine Bright, a 21-year-old assembly line worker, was stabbed to death in her home. Despite being shot twice in the head, her 19-year-old brother survived the attack. The detectives briefed um, Douglas... um, Briefing Douglas believed that having another case to link to BTK, especially one with a survivor, might help shed some new light on the suspect responsible for the murders. Um, and according to John Douglas at that time, the Wichita Police Department was regarded widely in law enforcement circles as one of the most progressive in the nation. So Douglas was pretty confident that the police had not botched this investigation, but the killer was still on the loose and this worried everybody. So the question now is why he had he stopped killing? What had happened to him? But he had become pretty much a ghost, which was why the task force created by Wichita police a few months before, in July 1984, 
had been named the Ghostbusters. Um, so Douglas thought that, uh, that the only way they could catch this ghost would be to find some way to flush him out, to develop some sort of a strategy to force him out into the light where he could finally see him. So, um, he started looking for a criminal profile that he wrote for the police back in 79. Um, he couldn't find it at that moment, so he thought, well, maybe it's in the office. And Joe Douglas remember that in 1981, he used BTK to help pry information out of the head of one of the nation's most notorious serial killers. And it was it happened in an interrogation room deep inside the Attica Correctional Facility, and he was with fellow FBI profiler Bob Ressler. And the guy that they were talking to was David Belkovitz, a.k.a. the son of Sam. They were asking um, David to help up with their criminal profiling study, which involved that 57-page uh, interview questionnaire. And some of the questions that they were asking was, what was his motive? Was there a trigger that set him off on his murderous spree? What was his early childhood like? How did he select his victims? Did he ever visit the grave sites of his victims? How closely did he follow the press coverage of his crimes? Because these answers would help them better understand the killers that they were hunting. And um, so they thought that interviewing Berkowitz, it was going to give them um, better ideas, not only for other serial killers, but um, it would eventually give some inspiration to work with some ideas regarding BTK's profile. So one of the things that they did was the following. They knew that killers um, that they have interviewed, they longed to have their ego stroke. And so suddenly um, John said to David Belkovitz, you know, David, there's a serial killer out in Kansas, a guy responsible for the death of at least six people who idolizes you. He's mentioned you in the letters that he writes to the police. He fancies himself just like you. He even wants a name like you. And of course, Becker's demeanor changed. He was curious. His look of boredom was replaced with a smirk. And and so he look at wrestler and ask him, you know, is is he kidding or this is the truth? And wrestler say, no, this is the truth. And John Douglas said, look, he called himself BTK. Bekovich asked BTK, what's that for? He said, bind, torture, and kill. That's what he does to his victims. And Bekovich nodded and he said. And this BTK, he's still out there? You guys haven't caught him yet? And uh, John Douglas replied, no, we haven't, but we will. So Berkowitz started laughing. And he slowly started walking Douglas through BTK's various murders, describing how he would kill them. Um, not not Berkowitz, sorry, John Douglas walked Berkowitz through the, the, the murders, how he would kill them, and then disappear for years at a stretch. And Berkowitz was listening. Um, and you could tell by the way his eyes locked onto John Douglas's that he was soaking up every piece of information that he was giving him. And John Douglas asked him, how can this guy control his appetite like that? And 
after a few minutes, um, he started trying to take Resver and uh, Douglas through every dark, twisted corner of his sad life, sharing details he had never told anyone, confiding that he had made up all the crap about demons in order to be able to cop an insanity plea if he ever got caught. By the time Ressler and John Douglas emerged from the interrogation room, their heads were spinning, and they owed it all to some deranged killer in Wichita. So, now, um, Douglas um, started, you know, remembering that he he looked at his old briefcase. He saw the notes that he took from that meeting um, with the two detectives in, in Wichita. And together with a group of profilers and a handful of the agency's top criminologists, they listened as the men walked through the case. And um, this time... They didn't want a profile. They just wanted to see if there were any proactive techniques that they could use to flush the killer out into the open. And one idea that came to mind was that police should organize a community-wide public meeting where the BTK murders would be discussed. The purpose of the gathering held in a location central to all the crime scenes, would be to get the unsub to attend. From his experience with many of the serial killers he had hunted in the past, he knew that their enormous egos and feeling of invincible superiority made it difficult for them to stay away from such meetings. So Douglas's plan was that investigators would covertly photograph those in attendance and identify all the vehicles outside the community hall. And because John Douglas was convinced that the killer was a police buff, he suggested that an announcement should be made that the authorities were looking for potential volunteers. He said, if we, if you need, should arise in the future when the police might help them, need help. The only requirements would be that the applicants needed their own transportation and some um, law enforcement training or education. The two detectives from Wichita scribbled down his suggestion, but it ate at, at him that there was something more than could be done, something altogether uh, new. So Douglas goes to his office and he started looking in his in his files for um, BTK, any information about BTK, which he did wrote up. Um, he did write a profile on BTK, like in 1979. Um, and his profile was three pages long with a cover sheet staple on top that I read, the attached analysis is only as good as the information that have been provided. In addition, it may be necessary to totally change or modify this analysis if new information is developed, such as additional victims, more forensic evidence, or new information obtained from research. So he started looking at the words that he typed years before. And it says, multiple homicides, Wichita. And this is what John Douglas wrote. And I'm just going to read um, an excerpt of it. Um, it says, the murders of the BTK strangler are the result of a fantasy acted out. 
a fantasy where for the first time in his life, he's in a position of importance and dominance. He is an inadequate type, a nobody who, through his crimes, has placed himself into a position of importance. The BTK Strangler is now a somebody who is receiving the recognition he feels is long overdue him. To show his inadequacies, he is not even very original in his crimes. He must pattern himself um, after other notorious killers such as the 44 caliber killer, better known as the Son of Sam in New York. Much of the verbiage um, that the subject is using in his letters probably comes out of recent publications in detective magazines. He also said, your subject is alienated, lonely, and withdrawn. He will not be expected to have any lasting relationship with others and will lead to solitary existence, dominated as mentioned above by fantasy and magical thinking. The killing is an attempt um, on his part to feel affection and acceptance. He will not be expected to have ever enjoyed any normal relations with women and probably has never had a normal heterosexual relationship with him. Um, he experiences intense fear that he is not normal and therefore kills to cope um, with his disorder as in an attempt to escape from his own fantasies. Then um, he can ex uh, uh, expected, although he can be expected to kill again and to do so in a compulsive repetition of the pattern he has already established. His victims will be in a position of vulnerability, um, one where he can totally render them helpless. His victims represent his own feelings of helplessness and hopelessness, and his own life had been disruptive. He probably comes from a background where his family was broken, he was raised by an overbearing mother who was known um, um, as being inconsistent with her discipline. Um, his, pro his father probably left home, either by marital separation or death, while he was a, uh, a youth. Your subject, um, and this is him and his report writing to the detectives, right? He says, your subject may have been raised by foster parents. Your subject was an average student in the classroom. However, he was more adept at the disrupting the class by using profanity and pranks. His language and statements make them believe that he has some military experience and is or is a police buff. He probably had has had run the uh, ins with a, with police in the past, such as assault or breaking and entering what is called a BNE. His involvement with the BNE will show that the items taken. Um, they were of insignificance. Items have taken were more for more reason of a fetish uh, of committing a crime that will leave little evidence to investigating officers. The BTK slamber uh, may um, have a history of voyeuristic 
activities, and he may have an arrest record for the same. He hunts his victims by selecting neighborhoods where he can peruse different uh, homes without being detected. Um, His victims would live in an area where um, if need be, and he can have an easy escape route, such as neighborhood park, where he can uh, secrete uh, secret himself to to elude the body. His killings were required motivated, and without elaborated planting, he seeks uh out targets of opportunity and such individuals of this type are frequently mechanically adept. They suffer from insomnia and thus would find difficult to homestead the employment controlled of himself and um, and of his environment is essential for such a, a person. Although he is Gaining in confidence, he is still shy, withdrawn, social, asocial, and isolated. Your department must not make any sentiments. Um, I'm trying to think how uh, simplify this. He also said that, you know, um, that he might suffer from insomnia, that this would find difficult to host the employment. Control of himself and his environment is essential for such a person. And although he's gaining in confidence, he's still shy and withdrawn, asocial, isolated, and such persons have typically been raised in other strict and religious fashions. Um, and then... Um, Douglas said to, referring to the cops, you, your department must not make any statements concerning the killer's mental condition. In other words, don't allow the media to label him as some psychotic killer. If they have already done so, then your best strategy um, would be to align yourself with the killer and that, the psychiatric experts. Any press releases should clearly state that he is a killer who must be apprehended and that he is not a psychotic animal. Extended periods between his murders may be for reasons when he was absent from the area, either as a result of military service, schooling, incarceration, or mental um treatment it is not uncommon uh for subjects such as yours and remember this is Douglas talking to the cops and Wichita um to frequent police hangouts in an attempt to overhear officers discussing the case furthermore such offenders will be at the crime scene observing detectives uh, investigating the police um, and looking um, for clues to the homicide. All this allows the murderer to fulfill his ego and gain a feeling of superiority. He may go so far as to telephonically contact your department and provide information relative to the crime. In other words, call the cops. And then Douglas wrote, your advantage in this case is that his very strong, self-centered attitude will be his downfall. He will provide information to a friend or an acquaintance in local tavern concerning information that he knows about the case. He may even uh, pretend um, to be an officer working the case. If the BTK Strangler reads police detective magazines, he is probably sent away for police badge 
that he carries on his person. In fact, he may even use this MO to gain admittance um, into the victim's homes. And he probably flashes his badge whenever opportunity lends himself. For example, paying for a drink in a tavern. His egocentricity keeps him in your city and he will probably kill again. So after John Douglas read his report, he refreshed his memory of what he wrote years ago. The first thing that came to his mind was, you know, these cops in Wichita have done everything right. They have interviewed thousands of people. They have tracked down countless potential suspects, including a former police officer, none of whom turned out to be the right person. For the past four months, the department's recently assembled task force, composed of six detectives, has sifted through the mountains of old case files that had accumulated over the past, the, the last decade, familiarizing themselves with every convoluted twist and turn the case had taken. But one thing was certain, their suspect was in the driver's seat. And not only that, he had grown smarter with every kill and seemed to enjoy toying with the police. BTK was how he seemed to define so much of what he took for granted about serial killers. The one thing different that he knew about him, now that he did it in 1979, was that three months after the Otero homicides, he had been responsible for the messy, nearly botched murder of Catherine Bright. Catherine or Kathy, Kathy Bright's brother, Kevin, who miraculously survived the attack, despite being shot twice in the face, described how his sister's killer attempted to convince them that he was a fugitive. He would, of course, need to tie them up because BTK told them, but all he really wanted was some food money and their car keys. Then he had been on his way. Dennis Rather lived only a short distance from Kathy and Kevin and had no intention of leaving them unarmed. Having a living witness provide a first-hand account of the killer's technique for coming and uh, lulling his potential victims into allowing him to tie uh, uh, them up and gave them a priceless bit of insight into how the, the suspect carried out his crimes. His homicides were difficult to pigeonhole because they possessed elements of both organization and disorganization. He was a control freak who can prepare often arriving at the homes of the victims with rope gags and guns and, and knife. But he didn't use force to convict, convince his victims uh, to go along with him. He used basically nothing. He pretended to be a relatively harmless thug, using words to manipulate his victims into allowing themselves to be tied up, usually without any struggle. But he also left some things to chance. If his intended victim wasn't available, he would strike the next best target he could find. On several occasions, it appeared he had difficulty controlling his victims, and he was hardly the neatest killer that John Douglas had encountered because he left behind semen near the bodies of two of his kills. Then there was his peculiar way of posing his victims. And he primped and preened the bodies in exotic positions, clothing and bindings as, uh, as fuel for his masturbatory fantasies. But he had also laid out and displayed nearly all the bodies on, of his victims, except for Kathy Bright, who died of stab wounds. 
for the investigators who arrived at his crime scenes long after he had fled. It was as he positioned the corpses the way a florist might arrange flowers. He wanted to shock, yet his visual statements were also fairly tame and modest. At least in terms of the work that he has seen sociopathic serial killers leave behind. Compared to those uh, maniacs who left se se severed heads propped up on TV sets, or the victim spread eagle on the floor with various objects inserted into the vaginas or rectums. The um, the um, sub was downright juvenile and softcore, but nevertheless, he uses victims as inanimate props, posing them to resemble a scene out of the pages of a detective magazine leaving them out in the open so that the first person to discover the body will practically trip over it when entering the room, the, the front door of the victim's house. Without a doubt, BTK was a sadist um, who inflicted horrible, um, unfathomable, horrors upon his victims and yet he also differed from all the other sexual sadists that Don Douglas studied. These were men who needed to inflict physical torture in order to be sexually satisfied. But BTK was different because he got off by employing a form of torture that was predominantly mental, not physical. Although he seemed obsessed with physical torture, it wasn't part of what referred to as his signature, which is what a killer must do to satisfy him um, himself psychologically. BTK's signature was bondage, not physical torture. BTK never penetrated any of his victims. It would have been easy to interpret this type of behavior as though... Uh, they were trying to say that you're not even good enough for me to rape, but I knew better. So his decision to not rape his victims or engage in necrophilia um, actually told Douglas that despite BTK's sexual obsessions, deep inside his mind, he felt hopelessly inadequate. His opinion of himself was so low and his fear of women so great that he could never bring himself to, to thrust himself so intimately into any of his victims. They were used purely as props. Masturbation was the only sexual activity he enjoyed during his binding, torture, and killing. So, John Douglas started thinking of the suspect as a, as a boy, and he imagined him learning his craft as a peeping tom. If nothing else, this youthful pastime gave him a priceless crash course in surveillance technique. Monitoring and studying his victims were absolutely crucial to him. He seemed to love the thrill of the hunt, probably even more than the actual killings. By the time he actually did strike, he would spend so much time fantasizing over what he intended to do to his victims that he had convinced himself that he controlled every aspect of their environment. As for his victims, um, he chose them based on both planning and spur-of-the-moment opportunity. He intended victims had to be available when he... Uh, the overpowering urge to kill struck. And if they were not, then he moved on to another target. And there was something else, according to Douglas. Judging from the way he managed to keep his crime scene so relatively free of fingerprints and other incriminated evidence, he was an extremely well-organized person, someone fixated on detail. Inwardly, he was an insecure, self-hating wreck. Outwardly, However, he exuded a pompous attitude 
that make it appear as though he possessed a grandiose opinion of himself. It was another one of his crazy sick paradoxes. Another thing that John Douglas find, found interesting was the communications that he sent police over the years. From the language he used, he was obviously both fascinated by cop or, or subculture and investigative procedure and quite familiar with them. He was convinced that he was either employed in some form of law enforcement, probably low down in rank or, or status, like a security guard or parking violation officer, or just got off dreaming about the power such a job could bestow on him. As is often the case with serial killers, his slayings were the most important undertakings of his life um, because otherwise it would be empty uh, existence with meaning. So from his letters, it seemed obvious that he was uh, a, a celebrity and he could become addicted to seeing his crimes written about in the newspaper and discuss on TV. Although he had killed men and children, it seemed obvious that women were his primary ta uh, targets. But John Douglas believed that deep down he loathed women. Whatever conflicts he had had with them as well as society were released through the murders he committed. Within his troubled mind, he took no responsibility for his actions. He was clearly um, in some state of depression, unable to genuinely love or be loved. His life was one in which he must seek out excitement and um, drama in order to feel alive. And although he was able to put a good front to others, the world he lived for and lived in had nothing to do with reality. It was based purely on the statistics fantasies inside his brain. By his own admission, BTK took trinkets from the house of his victims. He used them as fuel for his fantasies. He felt confident that they were one of the few things that quieted his head, which is why he needed to collect and preserve the trophies of his conquest. Taken from, um, from his crime scenes, Having the personal possessions of his victims reminded him of his glory days. And each homicide brought with it a psychological high that would um, quickly evaporate and always leaving him alone with his depressed thoughts and his trophies and keepsakes no... Um, Um, let me let me rephrase this. Each homicide brought with a psychological high that would quickly evaporate, always leaving him alone with his depressed thoughts. His trophies and keepsakes no doubt prove a bit more effective in keeping the depression away. And then there was a question that stumped Douglas and everybody else. Why have so many years lapsed, uh, lapsed sorry, since his last murder? So was it because he had picked up, some, picked up on some under, unrelated charge and was now in, in a prison cell? Was he in a mental institution? Could the police have gotten too close to him during one of the various phases of their investigation? Maybe they even interview him with, as a potential suspect and the experience might have proved too unnerving for um, this otherwise unflappable sociopath. Someone as sick and dangerous as BTK 
will stop killing only when he is killed or gets locked behind bars. So John Douglas's research had proven to him that this is the only way to reign with these guys because rehabilitation is, is like a fairy tale. So now we're going to see how is that John Douglas is going to start uh, or trying, because at this point he's still trying, to put the dots or connect the dots of this this mess that right now is um, BTK. And the hunt will continue next week. Thank you for listening to The Murder Book. Have a next week. Have a nice week, I should say. Thanks again for tuning into The Murder Book, a true crime podcast. You can find all episodes of The Murder Book for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podchaser, Amazon Music, you can go to my website, themurderbooktruecrimepodcast.com. All resources used in researching this episode, including books and newspaper articles, are on my website. We are on Facebook and on Twitter at themurderbook1. Send your comments or suggestions at my email, themurderbook5 at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a five-star rating so that others can find this podcast and it helps me get better. Episodes come out every Monday and there's a Spanish version for this episode. Enjoy your week.